Good morning. Good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to John chapter 19. It's good to see you this morning. Lately, we've been giving attention to the cross of Christ and to the implications that extend from the cross into our own lives today. When He was crucified, Jesus endured six agonizing hours on the cross from nine o'clock in the morning till three in the afternoon. During that time, He said very little. The physical pain was excruciating and the spiritual burden was even heavier. It took every ounce of strength just to breathe, much less speak. And still, the four New Testament Gospels record seven specific sayings from the cross, seven seven words that are of tremendous importance and encouragement. We sometimes talk about famous last words, don't we? Because last words are often lasting words. And never was this more true than with these seven final statements of our Lord. John records three of them. The third, fifth, and sixth. Already Jesus has prayed for those responsible for His death. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And already he has answered the prayer of the dying thief next to him. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we find those two words in Luke chapter 23. So as we come to John 19 this morning, we come to Christ's third word from the cross, one that involves the care of his mother. And the takeaway is this. Because Jesus was willing and able to care for Mary, even from the cross, in a weak and dying state, He is certainly willing and able to care for us. And all the more, since He now reigns victorious over all things. And so let's read this together. John chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And
And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, what a what a tender, unbelievably tender moment this must have been. On the one hand, just brimming with deep grief and sadness, while at the same time just bursting with hope and love. And I pray that this morning as we consider these words, as we revisit the scene, that you would meet us in our various griefs and sadness and bring hope and love. Would you enable us this morning to not only read and hear your word, but to grasp it, to understand it, to receive it, to be affected by it, to live differently because of it. Grant us faith this morning and encourage our faith as we look again to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to this tremendous care he exhibits, not only on the cross, but from the cross. So do your work among us this morning, even now in these moments. We pray this in his name. Amen. A crowd had gathered around the cross. Crucifixion was a a public affair. A strong-armed scare tactic intended to intimidate and keep people in line. And among those in the crowd are, are, of course, the Jewish authorities and religious leaders, as well as the Roman soldiers who carried out the deed, and some women who were followers of Jesus and had been ministering to him at various points uh, in his ministry. After conspiring against Jesus for months on end, the Jews, were told elsewhere, were just hurling insult after insult at him, basking in their apparent victory over him. Matthew says, And those who passed by, were uh, passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Mark notes, So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see 
and believe. Luke adds that people stood by watching as the rulers scoffed at him. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three, note that the two thieves who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him in the same way. The soldiers mocked him as well. Now, of course, they've been mocking him all along. After they'd flogged him, you remember they pressed a crown of thorns down upon his head and they draped a makeshift robe across his back and shoulders. They were making sport of Christ's claim to kingship while pushing and punching and spitting on him repeatedly. Now that they've crucified him, they continue their merciless barrage, adding insult to injury, stripping Jesus of his clothes. They took his garments and divided them amongst themselves, as John writes in verse 23. You get a picture here of just how cold-blooded and hard-hearted they were. I mean, what compels a man to want a dying man's blood-soaked, blood-stained clothes. And the one-piece tunic, apparently that was the real prize. And so rather than tearing it into pieces, they gambled for it. You can almost picture them huddled at the foot of the cross, uh, rolling dice or drawing straws, casting lots. The winner just bursting with excitement while Jesus anguishes just a few feet away. Calloused to the plight of the crucified, these soldiers seem to have grown bored. Each had probably crucified dozens of people. They knew exactly what to expect, what would occur over the next few hours. They'd learned to tune out every moan and cry, every anguished appeal for mercy for them the main attraction was just in nabbing a few items of clothing who knows maybe they could sell the tunic and make a few bucks and then there were the women four of them and notice how John clearly distinguishes between the soldiers and the women so, so the soldiers did these things. The soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Apparently Mary was a very popular name. Mary Magdalene is consistently placed at this scene in all four Gospels. Mary, the wife of Clopas, is elsewhere list, uh, identified as the mother of James and Joseph. And Mary's sister, whom John doesn't name by name here, was in fact his own mother, Salome. The mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, as we learn in Matthew and Mark. But the woman of most interest to us today is, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the interaction between her and her son. 
Mary is older now. Her hair is graying. Her skin is beginning to show wear. Her hands are weathered and worn. She and Joseph had raised a house full of children. But Joseph died a while ago, presumably before Jesus began his ministry, which meant even more work for Mary. Now a widow, having already suffered the loss of her husband, she beholds the crucifixion of her firstborn. We know Mary best, don't we, from the birth of Christ. She was just a teenager then, betrothed to Joseph, young, blessed by God. Do not be afraid, Mary, the angel Gabriel had said to her so many years prior, you have found favor with God, and behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And though she didn't understand the many details of her pregnancy and and exactly what this meant for her for the rest of her life, Mary trusted God. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. And on the night when Jesus was born, when the shepherds, came in from the field to behold him and testify to what the angels had told them. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Those amazing moments, those amazing moments, the time and night of Christ's birth have in fact been captured and interpreted by artists everywhere throughout history in nativity scenes and paintings and songs and carols. In fact, I've seen that same amazing look in my own wife's eyes as in those uniquely precious moments she treasured each of our newly born babies and pondered the goodness of God. And Mary not only experienced the miracle of childbirth for She gave birth to the Son of God and Savior of the world. Mary indeed had much to treasure and ponder. Shortly after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph presented him in the temple as was the custom of the day. And it was at that time when Mary heard Simeon praise God at the long-awaited arrival of the Messiah. She and Joseph uh, marveled as Simeon blessed them both, but, but, but even then Mary learned that heartache would follow, that the saving work of her boy Jesus would come uh, with great cost, that the cost of our salvation, the cost only He could and would pay, would cost her too. Simeon said it would be like a sword piercing her own soul. Who knows how many times Mary revisited those memories through the years or how many times she forgot to remember them. Thirty years would pass while Jesus grew from infant to toddler to childhood and into adulthood. Thirty years of family life, mostly obscure from the outside world, just blending in like everyone else. We can only speculate what it was like, but I imagine it to be pretty similar to families everywhere, a very normal combination of ebbs and flows, though certainly there must have been some remarkable times 
Because after all, the Son of God was living in the home. And then the day came when everything changed. The day Jesus came home with a certain look in his eye. And maybe he set Mary down and sat down with her. John, John is preaching in the wilderness. And he's baptizing in my name and preparing my way. The time has come. I must go now. Who knows how long Mary had been waiting for this moment or even dreading it secretly. Probably a little bit of both, both expectancy and fear that countless parents experience as their child grows more and more independent and eventually leaves the home. I imagine there was a warm embrace, a gentle kiss, and many, many tears as they said their goodbyes. From that moment on, Mary would know her son mostly from a distance. She wouldn't see him nearly as often, and when she did, she'd be just one of many faces in the crowd. She'd hear things about Jesus as his influence grew, good things. But not everyone liked Jesus. And so Mary no doubt heard some very hard things as his detractors conspired and criticized. So here she stands in the crowd at the crucifixion, cringing with each insult, breaking up inside as each soldier shames him. She sees and she hears it all. Simeon was right. A sword indeed was piercing her soul. As you can imagine and as any mother can testify, Mary must have died a thousand deaths that day. Aside from Jesus, aside from Jesus, no one on the face of the planet suffered as much as she did. If anyone needed comfort, it was Mary. And while hanging on the cross, Jesus looks out to see his mother and then notices John standing nearby. And with his eyes only, he directs Mary's attention to John and John's attention to Mary, and he committed the care of his mother to him. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, Behold, your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And again, these were among the final words spoken by Jesus before his death. They are, therefore, of tremendous importance. And they're meant for the encouragement of our faith. And so what's going on here, really? And what are we to make of it? I can think of at least three 
personal implications that apply to you and to me today. First, a relationship with God is not about spiritual things only. Now true, the cross is primarily about spiritual things about your spiritual well-being, about the need of your soul, about your eternal state and being reconciled to God. The cross is primarily about what Jesus did to pay your spiritual debt, the debt your sins accrue. The cross is primarily about atonement for sin, that He who was without sin was made to be sin so that you might be made right before God. But as true as these spiritual realities are, being in right relationship with God entails far more than spiritual things only. That Jesus paid attention to the physical, material, relational needs of His mother shows that He concerns Himself with our temporal and earthly needs also. Let's think this through for a minute. Have you ever wondered why Jesus waited until this moment to arrange for Mary's care? He could have done so sooner. He could have met with Mary and John at any point. Even during that final week, he could have told John to care for Mary like his own mother and then told Mary to look upon John as her own son. Even during the final night with his disciples, perhaps during dinner, there in the upper room as Jesus prepared them for his death, he could have leaned over and told John that he was entrusting him with this important responsibility. In the same way, he could have done this later. He could have done it later. He could have waited until after his resurrection, which was just a couple days away, and he knew that. Forty days he ministered among them after he died and rose again. So there was this 40-day window in which he could have arranged for the care of his mother before he ascended into heaven. Jesus could have done this at any time, either before the cross or after the resurrection. So why did he choose this time? When he was bearing the sins of the world. Was it just coincidence? I don't think so. Of all times, why now? I think it's because it reveals something about the heart of God. About the deep love of God. Hear this, church. God loves you not just to save you. It's not only about life in heaven. He loves you and cares about the details of your life on earth as well. And thus a second implication concerns our view of God in light of His view of us. We sometimes think we can't go to God with the seemingly small things. 
the everyday details of everyday life. We believe, we believe, we do, we believe that God is love in theory. But in practice, we sometimes assume otherwise, that He's interested in far greater things than my small by comparison wants or needs. I wonder, how many times did Mary wonder what would become of her? I can't help but wonder how many times she worried about what would become of her after Jesus was gone. Already she'd lost Joseph and now she was losing him too. Her other children, as best we can tell, didn't believe, not yet, didn't believe that Jesus was Lord. And so what would they say about her faith in God now? And what would become of her faith? What would become of her life and her living situation? With her husband and firstborn child out of the picture, who would care for her? as she grew older and her limitations grew more pronounced. Was she above such thoughts? Did she just kind of float a couple feet above the real world? I bet she thought about things like this more than we might imagine because it's normal. It's not unusual to wonder what the future holds. But at the same time, I bet she also felt guilty for thinking such things. She may have even felt like she couldn't go to Jesus with her concerns. How could she? How could she possibly approach him with her physical, material, temporal needs when he was to bear the sin of the world? Surely he had more important things to tend to. I do that. I do that in big and small ways. Assuming that God just doesn't have time or interest. An example comes to mind. I've, I've been fighting a cold for the last few weeks that I just can't seem to shake. A cough that I just can't seem to shake. It's nothing unusual, right? We all have these lingering Ailments and a cold and cough seems relatively low on the scale. And so rather than go to God for help or healing, I just want to power through on my own because he has far more important things to tend to. And after all, how can I pray for a cough when I have friends with cancer. We do that. We do that, don't we? We compare ourselves to others and we rank our many concerns. 
And unless my concerns score high on the universal scale of importance, unless they're really spiritual, I assume God would rather not be disturbed. Come on, right? We believe he loves in theory, but we thank he cares, but we but we also believe he thank he cares only about the big stuff, the really important stuff going on in the world and in the lives of those around us. So why bother him with the mundane stuff of my little life? Listen carefully to these words from the Apostle Peter. You know them well. 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because he cares for you. Now, the first part of that immediately makes sense to us, right? I mean, just immediately makes sense to us. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. We get that. We understand that. God is God and he is mighty, and therefore it makes perfect sense to humble myself before him. But it's the second part of that statement that surprises us. The part about casting our anxieties on Him. We get that God is mighty and that humility before Him makes sense, but the verse is actually teaching something much deeper and more personal and practical. It's saying, hear this, it's saying to humble yourself before God by casting all your anxieties on Him. Not some, but all. In other words, hear this. Don't be too proud to invite God into even the mundane recesses of your heart. Don't be humble yourself before God by casting all your cares on Him. In other words, don't be too proud to invite God into even the mundane recesses of your heart. Don't assume that God doesn't care about your cares. He does. And not only does He care about your cares, He cares about you. And then there's a third implication here. that involves the church, I think. From from that moment on, Mary was to receive John as her own son. And John 
was to receive Mary as his own mother. And so the relationship to one another was now based on the the call of Christ and formed by their shared commitment to Christ. And I think, isn't that the essence of the church? Members of the church share relationship with one another based on Christ's work in each of our lives, each of our individual lives, and forged by our faith in Him. So let me explain further. Do you remember when when Jesus encountered the rich young ruler? Though the man wanted eternal life, he was unwilling to surrender his life to Christ. And as the man walked away, you remember the scene, the man walks away and Jesus, or, uh, Peter chimes in to say that he and the other disciples have surrendered everything in order to follow him. And Peter wanted to know in those moments what would become of their sacrifice. Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What's to become of us? And so, to what must have been their utter amazement, Jesus says to them, now this was a word specifically to them, Jesus says that a day is coming when I will sit on my glorious throne and each of you will sit on thrones of your own. But then he adds these words that applies not just to them, but to us all. He says in Matthew 19, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now where in this life can you have a hundred fathers and a hundred mothers and hundreds of brothers and sisters? Answer? Only in the church. Though they weren't related biologically, John and Mary became family from that point forward. And it illustrates the, the provision Jesus has made for us in the church. The church is a spiritual family to be for us a place of ongoing community and care, a gift from God made possible by Christ and His cross. Though we aren't related by biological blood, Christ's blood binds us together in even greater ways. Isn't it true that the relationships we share as Christian believers often run deeper than even those with the unbelieving members in our own families? So the encouragement for us here is twofold. Concerning our relationship with God, cast all your cares on Him. 
Cast all your anxieties on Him. Whatever is causing you to be anxious today, whatever is concerning your heart, whatever weighs you down, whatever plagues you and bothers you and stresses you and worries you, cast all your cares on Him. He's essentially saying, Child, I love you. Give it all to me. Let me into your heart. Stop keeping me out. Let me in. Tear down the walls and let me in. Humble yourself in this way. Don't be too proud to keep those things from me. I want you, church, I want you, child, to cast all your cares on me. Give them to me. That concerns our relationship with God. And then concerning our relationships in the church, receive one another because you look around the room as you leave this place and you pass by receive one another as a spiritual family that God has lovingly provided for you God has lovingly provided these people for you And so both of these, the vertical and horizontal aspects, are evident in what Jesus said to Mary and John from the cross. And always remember, I said this at at the start, God is willing and God is able. Because Jesus was willing and able to care for Mary even from the cross, Though in a weak and dying state, certainly He is willing and able to care for us and all the more since He now reigns victorious over all things. Amen. God, we give you praise this morning. We thank you. What love is this? My prayer for these, my, my, my spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, my prayer for each one is that you would help each one to live in the wonder of your love today and always, not only for your glory, certainly for your glory, but, oh, Father, for our good as well. And we will give you praise. Amen.